episode 38 of the State of the Old Republic podcast, was originally recorded on May 22nd, 2017. It's the State of the Old Republic podcast. This week on the show, I'll give you an update on the elusive producer's roadmap. Ever wish you could live the life aquatic in a Manon stronghold? Well, that dream may just become a reality. I'll update you on my journey into PvP with some thoughts on pre-maids. I'm closing in on best in slot for my main tune. I'll talk about min-maxing 248 gear. Finally this week, Star Wars turns 40 on May 26th. I'll read you an homage I wrote to this great franchise. And with that, it's time to make the jump to light speed and check out the state of the Old Republic. Well, welcome to episode 38 of the State of the Old Republic podcast. I'm your host, Ted, and as you heard in the opening, I have another terrific show lined up for you today. First, as always, let's review some announcements for the Old Republic. And I have one announcement for this week, and that's the folks from Corellia Run Radio are holding a writing contest, and it's called This Ain't Yo Wampa's Writing Contest. Now, it's a fan fiction writing contest, and here's how it works. All entries will need to use one or more of six images for inspiration. And since this is radio and not television, I can't show them to you, but they are screenshots from the game. For example, one is a character, one is of three characters staring out at a Tatooine sunset from inside a uh, Tatooine stronghold. There is another of four characters in a cantina and another of a character sitting in the grass on Voss facing a tiny astromech droid. Now you can write a paragraph, two paragraphs, or maybe even a short story from beginning to end. They said this is about having fun and creativity, so let your imaginations run wild. You can have as many entries as you like. However, each entrant can only win one prize. Want to know what you're playing for? I thought so. So first prize is an Audible book download and a 60-day subscription code. Second prize is 1,050 cartel coins. And third prize is 450 cartel coins. The contest runs until June 20th, and winners will be announced at the end of June on a live show of Corellian Run Radio. So that's all the announcements I have. Let's slice the holonet and review the news this week. If you listen to last week's show, then you'll remember that I told you about a crash-to-desktop issue I was having with Star Wars The Old Republic after upgrading to the Windows 10 Creators Update. BioWare acknowledged the issue this week, along with some tips on things you can do to fix it, and here's what Eric Musco said. A few updates on the situation for players that have updated Windows 10 to the Creator Edition. They can experience an issue in SWOTOR that causes a crash to desktop. This seems to be primarily caused by being alt-tabbed out of the game and focusing on another window while SWOTOR is opening and loading. The team is looking into fixing the problem, and I will pass on updates as I have them. In the meantime, there are three workarounds which have had some success. 1. 
disable vSync on your video card, two, disable game mode in Windows, and three, in Windows, disable the full screen optimization option for SWOTOR. I will pass on more information as I have it. I haven't tried any of those things. Uh, what I do is just let the game load. I take my hands off the keyboards after hitting launch. I also make sure any open windows are minimized as well. And I'm able to get in without the game crashing. And once you're in the game, you're fine. So hopefully either BioWare or Microsoft, right, since they're the ones that actually caused the issue, will have a fix for this soon. All right, in other news, Keith Kanig, a SWOTOR game producer, provided an update on the much-anticipated producer's roadmap, and this is what he wrote. I wanted to let you know I'm still on target to deliver the SWOTOR roadmap this month. I will share with you the direction for each SWOTOR gameplay area, our plans for improving a variety of in-game experiences, and insight into how we'll be communicating with you going forward. In the meantime, I'd like to continue providing you with a weekly update. Last week I gave you a few highlights for the next game update coming in June. Here's another one. You'll now be able to customize Theron's outfit. And by Theron, he's talking about Agent Theron Shan and not Theron Sedrax, the Jedi Counselor Companion, who is still MIA, by the way. I don't know about you, but I'm both excited and scared to death by this change. And the reason I'm scared is that Theron is just too good for all the silly, half-nude, sexy, dancing-type outfits. Yet that won't stop some of you from dressing him up like some drag queen harlot. For my part, I just can't picture him wearing anything but his current outfit. So for me, my customizations will be limited to putting different dye modules in his current outfit. Keith went on to talk a little further about the roadmap and what will come as a surprise to no one. Some folks complain that all the changes announced so far are along the lines of bling, and that is a direct quote, by the way. And he hasn't said squat about issues with populations and PvP and bugs, etc. Well, Keith responded with the following. I won't give you platitudes about the issues you've raised, but I also do not want to enter into contentious discussions about upcoming changes when I haven't told you what we're doing yet. I fully understand your frustration and hope you'll hang with me long enough to realize how much I do care about our players, our game, and everyone's opinions. The team will deliver some amazing changes this year, and it won't be all bling. Having gotten into PvP now, as much as I enjoy it, I'm starting to see the darker side of it and understand some of the issues that plague this system, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. Now, regarding the roadmap, I'm certainly not upset that we haven't seen it yet. But as we get later in the year here, I'm concerned about the pace at which they're going to release content and just how much longer Knights of the Eternal Throne is going to last, because it seems like it's going to be longer than Knights of the Fallen Empire was. To put this in a little perspective, we're on game update 5.2 with 5.2.2 landing in mid-June. On June 1st last year, they released game update 4.5. So that's three game updates uh, ahead of where we are right now. And when you consider that there are three more raid bosses coming, this expansion could drag on a lot longer than 4.0 did. And I have to say... As much as I like getting expansions, the prospect of a new level cap and new crew skill cap, etc., 
is not something I really desire. So uh, it's okay that, you know, 6.0 isn't quite on the horizon yet. And quite frankly, the reality is the big reason to get to 6.0 is the belief that Galactic Command will be scrapped. And you know what? I'm not convinced that they're going to get rid of it. I'm not prepared to discuss it further today, but I would like to talk about why I think Galactic Command could be here to stay in a future show. What I did want to talk about today is something that I hope will be announced in the upcoming Producers Roadmap. And, you know, that's get ready to break out your scuba gear and prepare to do a giant stride into the deep blue waters of Manan because we're about to live the life aquatic from our new stronghold. The folks at Jedipedia uh, posted a video in the SWOTOR subreddit uh, this week, and it looks like the rumors of a Manan stronghold are true. Now, the video was a preview of the stronghold, uh, and they did a walkthrough of the whole thing. And I have to say, it's a preview with a capital P, by the way. It's preliminary and lacks polish, but it really has me excited. Uh, when Bioware announced that they were adding a new stronghold in 2015, I prayed to the Force that it would be Manon. They gave us Yavin 4 instead, and I loved it. That ancient jungle temple is my sanctuary. I spend so much time there. And you know what? I'm going to remember it, though, with great fondness as I relocate to Manan. Manan is a beautiful world. Its pristine streets, ocean vistas, and floating cities are the perfect environment to relax after a day of mayhem. I just wish I could truly feel the cool ocean breeze as it gently wafts across the golden sun deck as I gaze out into the horizon, wondering if I'll ever get that last piece of 248 gear to drop from a crate. Now, if it weren't for the Selkath, Manon would absolutely be perfect. They don't like outsiders, and I don't like them. Their muffled vocalizations make me want to puncture my eardrums with a sharp stick every time I hear them speak. Fortunately, they won't be a part of the stronghold. At least I hope they won't. Now, nothing about the stronghold is final. The rooms, hooks, and costs are all works in progress, and of course they're subject to change. But here are the preliminary details uh, the Stronghold will be part of Game Update 5.3. The Stronghold will cost 2.5 million credits to purchase. And remember, it's better to use coins than credits to purchase the Stronghold. That way, if you deactivate it, you can reactivate it for free. Also, if you purchase it with coins and then transfer a character onto another server, you can then unlock it there for free as well. Uh, there is an upper floor you can unlock for 975,000 credits. There is an underwater observatory you can unlock for 2 million credits. And there are north and south deep water sanctuaries you can unlock for 1.45 million each. And the sanctuaries apparently have floor-to-ceiling windows for wondrous ocean views. Again, this is just data-mined information and nothing, absolutely nothing has been officially announced. But the recent data-mined information has been spot on. Speeder Boost, the Return of the Nightlife event with new rewards, all were data mined, and now we know they are coming to pass, so I expect the same for the Manon Stronghold. In other news this week, Charles Boyd responded to a post asking what the rationale could be to justify a Sith pureblood as the main character in the Sith Inquisitor story. Uh, the poster offered up their own theory that the Sith Inquisitor was from a Sith pureblood family that fell out of favor with a higher lord and was cast down and enslaved. And this is what Charles said about that. 
As brutal as the Sith are to one another, there must be cases where a powerful pure-blood Sith, Sith is overthrown and their surviving family members enslaved. It would certainly be quite the trophy for the Sith who overthrew them. If purebloods are held to be the most powerful, then defeating and enslaving them must be seen as an impressive display of power indeed. Perhaps the victorious Sith had, had intended to keep his pureblood victim's family in slavery permanently, but was overruled and forced to send the Force-sensitive ones to the Academy as is tradition. Now he slash she is constantly trying to find ways to undermine or kill the pure blood covertly before they can become powerful enough to exact revenge. Could be some fun RP opportunities beyond what the storyline brings. Of all the stories, the Sith Inquisitor is by far my favorite. They're all good, but if you were to put a blaster to my head, I would rank this story number one uh, each and every time. It's a treasure hunt. It's a ghost story. It's a wonderful anti-hero story. You're the dark side, yet you still have the same humble beginnings and challenges that a character like Luke Skywalker faces. It has great characters in Harkoon, Zash, Thanaton, Kemval, and, and Talos Drelik. I could do without Ashara for sure, but the others are quite good. It also has great bits of humor, especially from Ken Kemval, which was truly unexpected. Uh, the light side story on Nar Shaddaa is also great fun. So if you work it on the Inquisitor story or, or have a uh, wish to roll one, and you've never done the light side options for the story on Nar Shaddaa, I, I recommend that you give it a try because that's actually uh, quite a bit of fun. Uh, it is hands down my favorite. I've done it several times, but I've avoided using a Sith Pureblood because it didn't feel right. But now with this explanation, it makes great sense that it could happen and I'm seriously considering rolling a Sith Pureblood Assassin because I actually don't have an Assassin and would like to try one, and I've heard that Stealth are pretty good in PvP. Which brings me to my next topic du jour, and that's Premades in PvP. And if you've been following my exploits, I've really been getting into PvP. A couple of episodes back, I talked about learning to have fun, which I did, and then I talked about learning the objectives and how to execute them. Still a work in progress, uh, still a work in progress for myself. I did actually win a Void Star by capping a door, which was great. I also failed horribly at guarding a pylon during an ancient hypergate and uh, lost that to the other team, single-handedly, by the way. Uh, I talked about learning your class and understanding abilities and priorities for PvP, and today I want to talk about one of the buzz saws you can sometimes run into in PvP, and that's the pre-made group. Now, there are a couple of types of pre-mades out there. There's the type of pre-made that I'm usually in, and this is where I group with a few guildmates to shorten the queue and make sure we're not on opposite teams having to fight one another. We usually hop into voice chat, and then while the enemy is stealthing around like Obi-Wan Kenobi on the Death Star, we're engaging in Stormtrooper banter. Hey, you see the new, seen that new VT-16? Yeah, some of the other guys were telling me about it. They say it's quite a thing to see. Hey, what was that? And before you know it, what's happening is the other team has captured an objective. The other type of pre-made you run into is a highly organized and virtually impossible to beat machine. These are guildmates who have picked specific classes. They're in voice chat. They have a strategy for each war zone and they have a plan B for each war zone as well. Try as you might, you can't seem to kill 
any of their guys. They're able to cap multiple objectives and or they can prevent you from doing so. They don't even always kill you. I've been in matches where I didn't kill any of their guys and I didn't die either. They just toy with you. Now, I'm not here to complain about that so much. It is what it is, and you can certainly learn from watching those guys in action. But it does make for some terrible, terrible matches. And for me, the war zones that are the most fun are the close ones, whether it's maintaining a small lead and winning at the end or or, or coming from behind or even losing a close one. The ones that are competitive are the most fun, and you're not going to win them all. The problem with the game right now is that the servers don't have the populations to support fancy matchmaking for war zones. They did away with ranked war zones such as Voidstar and Novari Coast, so ranked is all arena. Uh, so if a strong group wants to band together and run war zones, you're in a, and you're in a bona fide random group, you have to, you know, either take it or decide to PvP later and try and get out of their rotation. But, you know, there's no place for these guys to go, and there's no way to match up a group against another group, and there's no way to match players of a similar skill level by, say, having a, a, a quote, hidden rank, where you could just kind of match up similarly skilled players. So you queue, and then you see what the system throws at you, and for the most part, it's been good. But when you find a pre-made on the other side, it does suck the life out of you a little bit. And that, by the way, I think is why people are asking for these mega servers and server merges. Because, you know, it, it might help to just make things feel a little bit more competitive, a little more balanced, and so forth. And that's just not what we're getting from, from PvP right now. Although I am, I am enjoying, still enjoying it despite some, some of the pitfalls like running into a, a fairly strong pre-made group. So the next topic I wanted to talk about was just a little bit of a Galactic Command update and gear and talk about sort of min-maxing uh, Tier 4 gear. That's the 248 gear. If you're into min-maxing, you're probably familiar with Bant's spreadsheet. Uh, it lists the optimal stats and configuration for all 24 disciplines, and it does it for 230, 236, and 242 gear. I think Bant either quit the game or decided to stop updating uh, his spreadsheet, so it's not current for the new 248 gear. There is a great post on the forums, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but it has the updated numbers and recommended build-outs for all 24 disciplines in 248 gear. Now, it's important to keep in mind that these numbers are based around you having all of the pieces of the gear puzzle. And it's what things should look like when you no longer need any gear. I mention this because min-maxing is a bit of a puzzle. And you need to adjust things based around the gear you have and not the gear you will have or would like to have. Min-maxing calls for balancing crit accuracy, alacrity, and mastery around augments, enhancements, and crystals. And just because Best in Slot says you should have nine alacrity augments doesn't mean you should pop in nine of them if you don't have the supporting pieces. You should balance as you go. And keep in mind, too, that you'll probably need a couple of duplicate pieces of 248 gear to get the enhancements that you need. For example, on my Merc, uh, Best in Slot calls for one accuracy enhancements. Well, the gloves and boots 
Both come with accuracy enhancements. And then God forbid you should get a 248 implant with accuracy and then two more with accuracy, which are now sitting in my bank. And I'm only, yeah, two are in the bank. I'm only wearing the one. I'm not a theory crafter, but I do like to min-max. And this post on the forums is a good resource for doing it with tier four. So if you're into min-maxing your characters, I highly recommend that you check out this post. And again, I will have a link to it available in the show notes. Okay, so May 26th marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Star Wars back in 1977. And I mentioned before that I wrote a, a piece for Coffee with Kenobi called A Long Time Ago in a Galaxy Not uh, so far away. I don't know if you went over there and had a chance to read it or even aware of it, but I thought it'd be fun if I were just read it to you today in honor of the upcoming 40th anniversary of Star Wars. Now, it's hard to believe, but Star Wars Episode 4, A New Hope, turns 40 this year. It seems like only yesterday that I was tromping around my backyard pretending to be Luke Skywalker in Han Solo. Actually, I was doing that yesterday, but I mean as an eight-year-old kid back in 1977. A New Hope is a period piece, and other than Luke and Han's hairstyles, it's easy to forget that this film was released in the late 1970s. While it's never a bad time to be a Star Wars fan, nothing compares to how good it is today. Every time I hear someone complain about Legends vs. Canon, or points out some imperfection from Rogue One, a Star Wars story, I want to turn to that person and say, you have no idea just how amazing the Star Wars landscape is right now. Whether it's the films, novels, television, costumes, or toys, all of it is so much more incredible than what we had back in my day. Let's start with the films. Back in my day, we didn't have multiple versions of A New Hope. There was just one, and Han didn't shoot first or last. He just shot, and we loved it. Also, the Cantina patrons didn't have fancy names and elaborate backstories. Back in my day, they had politically incorrect names based on how they looked. Snaggletooth, Hammerhead, and Walrus Man. Do they even have walruses in a galaxy far, far away? I don't know, and back then, we sure as heck didn't care. One thing we couldn't do back then is rewatch the films once they left the theater. I have all eight films loaded on my phone, tablet, and other devices. I can watch a Star Wars film wherever I go and wherever I want. In 1977, there were no DVDs or DVRs. BCRs were still in their infancy, and competing formats of VHS and Betamax were just dropping their cloaks to do battle like Jedi and Sith. Back in my day, if you wanted to watch Star Wars once it left the theater, you did it by listening to the soundtrack on your parents' record player. Not only that, but beyond the film, additional stories were slim pickings. Back in my day, we didn't have this finely woven tapestry of tales governed by an official story group. For a long time, we had one novel, Splinter of the Mind's Eye by Alan Dean Foster. I'm not saying it was a bad story, but it is without question the square peg and the round hole that is the galaxy of Star Wars stories. The planets were bland. There was awkward sexual tension between Luke and Leia. R2-D2 was referred to as a D2 unit, and Darth Vader had a blue lightsaber. Anyway, we read it, we liked it, and we didn't question where it fit in the greater pantheon of Star Wars lore. Back then, they were just stories in one of the few gateways that transported us to a galaxy far, far away. Then there is television. I still have chills from the Twin Suns episode of Star Wars Rebels. Back in my day, we didn't have a sophisticated animated television series that artfully meshed with the greater story and explored the mysteries of the Force. 
We had the 1978 Star Wars Holiday Special, and guess what? We liked it. Maybe not all of it, but some of it to be sure. On November 17th, 1978, I gathered in the living room with my family and sat in front of the television, giddy with anticipation. I ooed as Boba Fett made his debut, and I cheered when Han Solo swooped in and saved Chewie's family from the clutches of the Empire. I'll admit the rest of it was a giant pile of Bantha Poodoo, and it's unclear if I suffered irreparable brain damage from watching it, but it's all there was. The truth is, if we wanted to experience a truly great Star Wars story, we had to use our imaginations and create our own. We didn't have quality costumes from Anovos or replica weapons to aid us. If you wanted to dress up like a stormtrooper, you did it with a costume made of paper mache and chicken wire. If you wanted to be Han Solo, you put on your dad's suit vest, grabbed your mom's favorite hairdryer, and ran out of the house with her chasing you like a legion of stormtroopers on the Death Star. You'd turn to the dog and yell, Come on, Chewie, let's get out of here as you escape to the backyard. The one thing we did have that you kids have today were build-your-own-lightsaber kits, only we didn't call them that. Back then, they were called broomsticks and tree branches. Mine was from a nice birch tree we had in the front yard. Sorry, Dad, but the galaxy needed a hero, and it chose me. Like Luke Skywalker and now Rey, we didn't go it alone. Star Wars was something we experienced with friends. If we weren't pretending to be the heroes ourselves, then we were making up adventures with our toys. Back then, we didn't keep our toys boxed up like they were the crown jewel of our retirement portfolio, although I wouldn't mind if I had. We didn't put them behind glass like a museum diorama either. We played with them, and we played hard. We played with them on the beach and pretended it was Tatooine. We played with them in the snow and pretended it was Hoth. Want to know which ones float in water and which ones sink? I can help you with that. If I were to sell my Luke Skywalker X-Wing on eBay, I'd have to label it as the Special Dagobah Edition, my Millennium Falcon, the Return of the Jedi Edition, the Radar Dish is missing. I still have my vintage Star Wars action figures. Their accessories? Not so much. There's a three-acre plot of land in Connecticut that is an archaeological treasure trove of tiny blasters and lightsabers. When we were done playing with our toys, we traded cards. Back in my day, we didn't have digital trading cards. We had actual cards. Trades were done in person, and it was often a tense meeting where diplomatic solutions could quickly turn into aggressive negotiations. Completing a set was a big deal, and I remember the day my friend and I were haggling over our Empire Strikes Back Series 1 cards. As he was flipping through his set, I saw it. Card number 13, Planet of Ice. Luke Skywalker aboard his trusty Tauntaun. My friend had it, and I didn't, and it was the last card I needed to complete the set. It wasn't easy, but I convinced him to trade it to me. It cost me every duplicate I had, plus I had to loan him my Death Star playset and my Atari 2600 copy of Space Invaders. It was totally worth it, though. A long time ago in a galaxy not so far away, the world took its first steps into the larger universe of Star Wars. Forty years later, the films are grander, the stories are more polished, and the costumes and toys are more intricate, but one thing remains consistent, and that is a deep appreciation and love by fans for Star Wars. Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi releases in December. Perhaps we can return to this space in 2057 and reflect on just how primitive things were back in 2017. Seriously, if we don't have real lightsabers by then, science will have failed us all. May the Force be with you always. So that's all I have for you today. Let me cue the music and congratulate you on surviving another half hour listening to episode 38 of the State of the Old Republic podcast. I'm your host, Ted, and I thank you for tuning in. 
You can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, and Buzzsprout. You can also listen to the show directly from the show site, which is SOTORpodcast.com. And there is an RSS feed where you can subscribe to the podcast as well. If you have a question for the show, you can email me at SOTORpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet your questions too at SOTORpodcast. And be sure to follow me on Twitter to get the latest information on the podcast. Look for episode 39 on May 30th, 2017. And remember the Sith Code. Take is a line.